It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about crime. <laughs> Yay. Specifically, the fear of crime and how that fear is in politics. From the law and order rhetoric of the 1960s and 1970s to the tough on crime policies of the 1980s and 1990s, crime has been a potent political issue with politicians using statistics and fears about crime to appeal to voters and win elections. But how accurate are these crime statistics and how valid are the fears about crime that politicians exploit? And what are the consequences of using crime as a political tool, both for our overall democracy and for the communities that are most affected by crime and criminal justice policies? Most recently, the conversations around crime statistics fears about crime have shifted towards issues such as bail reform and overall gun violence. Just this week, I penned a letter to the New York State Legislature urging them to hold the line on the historic bail reforms we recently passed here in New York State in 2019. The reforms have been blamed for almost every crime that has happened in New York City since it went into effect, despite there being no evidence to support that. But of course, you can't tell that to the New York Post and the nightly news producers who spin the story that making the system more equitable means we are taking New York City back to the dangerous old days. It's not just here in New York, though. Many states and cities across the country are reexamining their bail systems, which have been criticized, rightly so, for unfairly punishing low-income defendants and perpetuating mass incarceration. At the same time, there's a growing movement for gun control legislation in response to tragic mass school shootings and the increasing rate of deaths due to gun violence. How interesting that the fear of one type of crime prompts some to want to crack down on the alleged perpetrators and maintain what we all know to be systems of inequality, but are vehemently opposed to public policy known to work like banning assault rifles to curb other types of crime. Well, joining me at the front of the class to discuss this complex and contentious issue and to learn how to think critically about how crime statistics and the fear of crime are used in our politics is Insha Rahman, the Vice President of Advocacy and Partnerships at the Vera Institute, having practiced as a, I think she was a public defender um, at some point, She's a nationally recognized expert on bail and has developed bail legislation and policies, including recently the reforms that were passed here in New York and provided technical assistance and training to advocates, judges, defense attorneys, and prosecutors on bail reform, pre-child justice. I bet you she don't even remember. So I want to bring to the front of the class to have this conversation, Insha Rahman. Hi, Insha. Hi, Eljoy. It's great to be here. Excited to teach and learn today. <laughs> 
Oh, yes. I, I love it. I love people that are like, you know, open to teaching and being um, in the front of the class and talking about this. Because rightfully so, like even as I was preparing um, to do this conversation with you and I've been preparing for weeks and talking to my mentor, talking to other people about bail reform. As I mentioned in the upfront, uh, up I wrote a letter telling legislature, like, mm -hmm. don't like roll back something that we worked hard to move forward. Yep. You know, I get the pushback from people, including in my own community, be like, well, well, what do you say about that one guy who was arrested in all this time and the bail the thing? And I'm just like, so even people that you would think, right, mm -hmm. who are advocates and sort of work in this space and know the inequities that exist, whether it be in bail or the justice reform system overall, are still swayed by crime statistics more accurately how they are portrayed and used in political discourse and in the media. Yeah. So before we get there though, it's your first time here. So I'd love to hear the story of your first civic action. Sure. Well, my first civic action was with my mother when I was a kid. My mom is very religious. I grew up in a religious family, and I grew up in a community where there are a lot of day workers who would be outside, really hot, was in the desert, not a lot of water, not a lot of food. And every weekend, my mom would spend all day cooking and make these little boxes of food. And my job was to help her in the kitchen. And we're talking when I was five, six, seven years old. And then we would drive around and you know, see workers outside taking a break or on the job and we'd stop and we'd deliver um, boxes of food. And we did this every single weekend of my life until I was old enough, moved out of the house. And then my dad sat in the front seat of that car and was the person delivering boxes. And my mom has been doing that for decades at this point. Um, and I think of that as like deep love for community and for people. And it's very much civic action. I love that. I love that story. Um, sharing and, and partly because, you know, civic action is also about community, it's about mm -hmm. talking, engaging, sometimes servicing the community and the people in your community. So that that is a very wonderful um, uh, civic story in that aspect. So I want to take a break here because I want to get into the thick, yes. <laughs> the thick of this conversation. And I don't, I mean, I feel like we only, we only got 40, but like 49 minutes, but um, we have to think about how we can quite package this one to prepare people as they are receiving the onslaught of information mm -hmm. and they see the graphs and the, you know, all the stuff that is used in, in, in the paper on the front page to, you know, nightly news, how they can think critically but yep. then also how we advocate differently once we know um, that information from there. So we'll take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk more about it. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the T-shirt, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the T-shirt? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Joining me is Insha Rahman from the Vera Institute. Love Vera Institute. Um, I didn't know you guys were like national now. I thought we had you all to ourselves in New York. Uh, <laughs> But We've now been we have national for a minute, but we, we know where we're from and we're true to our, our roots. 
So when, um, uh, in the beginning, when I was talking about, you know, we'll start at the entry point in terms of bail reform. Yeah. And I live uh, in, in New York City right now, and it, it seems like there's this ongoing battle that happens anytime we get an inch. And I, I just want to be clear, bail reform, at least that was recently passed, is like an inch forward, right? <laughs> in terms of the number of reforms that are needed in terms of writing the inequality of uh, our criminal justice system. But there has been so much misinformation about what has done. And then still the cherry picking of crime statistics, putting them on the front page, um, you know, on the nightly news sort of leads to this mm -hmm. questioning, even amongst people that are advocates and are our allies yep. on reforming and going forward. What's that all about? Yeah. I mean, Eljoy, the actual policy change of bail reform, which is money shouldn't determine whether somebody gets to go home or stays in jail after an arrest. If you ask New Yorkers, literally you will get 80, 90 percent of New Yorkers saying, yep, that makes sense. I agree with that. And before bail reform passed, over 60% of New Yorkers said, I'm in support of this law. What happened between, you know, 2019 when the law passed and then today, you know, four years later, where we're finding support for bail reform is kind of in the gutter with New Yorkers, including the kinds of New Yorkers you're talking about who should actually see this as a net benefit because it's really about equity and justice and making sure people have a fair shake in the system. And what happened there is really two things. One is there's a basic fundamental fear that we all have, and that's the fear of not being safe. And so if in these conversations we're actually talking, it sort of turns down the temperature, it turns down the fear mongering, it turns down the sort of quibbling over statistics, and it helps to start with a shared value, which is safety, and we all care about being safe. And then the second is to acknowledge that what we're doing right now doesn't make people feel safe. What we were doing before bail reform passed, there were many people, many New Yorkers in many neighborhoods who said, the system right now isn't working to keep me or my community or my loved ones safe. And so just recognizing like we're not getting safety right and therefore we need to go to the solutions that actually work to keep us safe. And this is where there is a ton of opportunity because if you blame the wrong causes for what's not making us safe, you miss the opportunity to find the right solutions. And so when I have conversations with people who are like, well, I support the idea of bail reform, but I think we went too far. Did you hear about that person who got released and look what they did? What I start with is saying, look, we all deserve to be safe. So if we're not feeling safe, we have to do something about that. And the truth is we need to focus on the right causes Rolling back bail reform is not going to actually address the concerns that we have about gun violence in our communities, about untreated mental health needs and substance use disorders. It's not going to actually get people housed. So let's actually focus on those problems because people will agree those are the drivers of crime. Those are the drivers of what make our communities less safe. Let's focus on those. Stop blaming bail reform. Let's get to the real solutions. And I feel like that's actually a really effective frame for getting people to, again, get out of the politics, turn down the temperature on this issue and have a real conversation about safety. And so bail reform is not just happening in New York, right? Like um, 
I, I know some of you who are listening are just like, she always talking about New York. One, that's where I live, duh. Two, <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of advocates and there's a lot of support in other states in terms of addressing this as well. Illinois, um, I think Ohio got rid of um, money bail as, you know, it's a primary source. Uh, New Jersey, right? So it's in a lot of different areas where this is a consideration yep. um, or, you know, people are trying to uh, prime the landscape, if you will, in order to address that. What is the status of this nationwide? Like, what are what are we thinking nationwide and moving this forward? So New York's really the only place where bail reform has been uh, as fear-mongered as it has. That said, it's been a it's been challenging across the country. New Jersey now is six years into doing bail reform, and they've had remarkable results. And mind you, bail reform got passed in New Jersey by a Democratic legislature and a Republican governor. Chris Christie was in, in um, the governor's mansion at the time that bail reform got signed and passed into law in New Jersey. And over six years later, here's what the results are. First of all, there's close to half as many people in jail as a result of bail reform. It simply took money out of the equation. And so the only consideration judges have is somebody going to be safe if they're released. And if so, we release them. And that's made a huge difference to the jail population. The second thing that bail reform has done in New Jersey is actually improve public safety because no longer is wealth. Can you pay bail or not? The decision about whether somebody gets released, it's actually a judge considering public safety. And the third thing that it does is there's been a real investment in community-based services, supports, treatment, pretrial services, which is the supervision and monitoring that you give people if they um, are pending trial. There's been a real investment in that infrastructure. And that only happens when you say, we're going to make the decision to do things differently, have fewer people behind bars. So New Jersey is a real success story. And another place that I just want to talk about, because I mentioned earlier, in New York, the feeling around bail reform is it's tough, you know, the vibes aren't good. And what we saw in comparison is in Illinois, they passed bail reform in 2021. We had a big election season last year in 2022. And what we saw was a lot of fear mongering in Illinois, like exactly the kind of fear mongering that we see here in New York. The front page of the news is like, this person is released and they did this. and money being spent on political ads, calling all kinds of legislators, especially Democratic legislators, soft on crime for favoring bail reform. But what we saw in Illinois that New York legislators didn't do is at every single turn, they reminded voters of why we need bail reform, why having money is not fair, it's not just, and it's actually not good for public safety. And at each and every turn, they reminded people, not only do we need bail reform, we also need to address concerns about safety. So let's talk about the real solutions for safety. It's not rolling back bail reform. And what we saw at the ballot box last November is in Illinois, every single legislator from Governor Pritzker on down won re-election comfortably. And there was a poll that actually came out after the midterm elections where Illinoisians were asked, how do you feel about bail reform? And 60%, 6-0, said, I feel neutral or favorable. Compare that to New York when the law got passed in 2019. As I said, over 60% of New Yorkers thought it was a good law. They were in favor of it. After three, four years of fear-mongering and without politicians who passed the law loudly and proudly defending why we need bail reform, 
and loudly and proudly talking about safety and what else we need to do to keep our communities safe. That's why we saw support for bail reform tank in New York the way it did. So it doesn't have to be this way. And I think there's a real civics lesson. There's a real political strategy lesson to be learned in comparing what New Jersey, for example, or Illinois has done around bail reform compared to New York. So take note, Albany and New York legislators, Governor Hochul, we could do this differently. In fact, we owe it to our communities to do this differently because rolling back bail reform is not going to make us more safe. I want to zoom out a bit because as I said in the opening, right, like the the fear of crime um, is an often used tactic, particularly in political campaigns. Sure is. Um, It's been used in presidentials, in mayoral elections, you name it. Um, it, People can really um, stake a claim and make a name for themselves um, in trafficking in fear of crime from campaign ads and, you know, the, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, don't you want your community to be safe, you know, kind of thing. So like, it's hilarious to me as some politicians talk about going back to the seventies and going back to, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the, this era, which is just like the conglomerate of things that cause those issues, <laughs> like some of which you're advocating, we go back to doing, you know, like, you know, to make us safe, to make us safe then, right. make us safe now. And LJ, right. there's, there's a word for that, what you're calling the trafficking in the fear of crime, and that's called Willie Horton, Willie Hortoning. We all know exactly what that looks like. It is a tired playbook, and we just saw in the last election cycle in 2022, we'd been counting how much money was spent on ads attacking legislators and Democrats in particular for being quote unquote soft on crime. $157 million worth of ads just in one election season, $157 million. Imagine if we invested that in things that actually make our communities safe, be a lot more effective than the weaponizing of fear. Yeah, but um, it works on some people. It does. It, Although- it, it works not as effectively as it may have in the past. Mm-hmm. But it certainly, while it may work for in in some instances for people to you know vote for or against people, um, even amongst those people that I was telling you about, those addicts or others who may vote a different way and sort of understand the complexity, it still seeps into mm-hmm. our conversation in our mind. As you mentioned, people being like, "Well, what about that one case? And what about this one?" Yep. So what I want to shift and ask you about is, you know, as Norm as the normies watch mm-hmm. TV, right? I'm talking about the normies who are not steeped in the statistics and the strategy and everything like we are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they they see the front page headlines of you know what crime happened today and what it is responsible for it. How are we supposed to ingest that information? and think critically about what is presented for us to, in in those quick snapshots that it is that we see those headlines and hear that teaser of the nightly news. Yeah. Well, for one thing, the normies, voters, constituents, community members, 
they're a lot smarter than politicians give them credit for with those Willie Horton ads. So we've been doing a lot of research and message testing to understand what is the impact of those ads and how does it affect voters and how they show up at the ballot box. And what's really heartening is, first of all, people recognize rhetoric and scare tactics for what they are. And what we've seen time and time again is the average person they say, I actually don't want scare tactics. What I want are real solutions. But they only feel compelled to move in that direction when they hear from Democrats, from advocates, from leaders, actually, I'm not about scare tactics. I'm about solutions. I'm not about rhetoric. I want to have a real, honest conversation about safety. The biggest problem that we see is one party, the GOP, spends a lot of money a lot of ads, a lot of time weaponizing the issue of crime and playing upon people's fear about safety and whether their communities are safe. And when that's met with silence, which is often what happens, you'll watch a Democratic candidate who's being attacked for being quote unquote soft on crime pivot to another issue. Let me talk about democracy. Let me talk about abortion. Let me talk about something that's better for me. Or worse, they actually double down on tough on crime language themselves, and they sound indistinguishable from their opponents. Here's what we know from every single voter survey, which is voters don't believe either party, Democrats or Republicans, are doing a good job on crime and safety. They're both underwater. And so what we found is when a candidate, an elected official, a leader shows up with a strong affirmative vision for three things, preventing crime delivering safety, promoting justice, that's when voters listen and they say, right, that's what I want. And so for the everyday person who's watching the nightly news, I urge people to think about like, what's the story that I'm seeing? What drove this incident? And what are the actual concrete solutions that would prevent that crime before it happens instead of just reacting in the aftermath? And right now we have a system where we have invested in things between policing and courts and jails and prisons that simply respond to crime after it happens instead of preventing it in the first place. Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> I, I said this towards the end in the beginning that while on one hand, um, the Willie Horton, <laughs> Willie Horton is used in terms of crime in our neighborhoods and, you know, crime that you can visibly um, you know, I have, I'm going to have to do a whole nother show. Oh no, I actually did one. I was talking about like people view home homelessness as mm -hmm. a crime, right? Yeah. But not the effects as to the reason why a person is homeless or why a family is homeless. But the fact that I can visibly see a person on the street without a home or without a place to be and their belongings, people view that as a crime, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is a crime that they're on the streets, like get them off. And I'm like, is the street not public? Like, why can't they be <laughs> like on the street? Like, can we talk about the crime that they are actually out on the street to begin with and are, mm -hmm. are not housed sufficiently rather than like just shoo them away? Like you just don't want to see it. Kind of yeah. Thing. Well, I will say I've noticed, and this is true among like, you know, liberal park slopers for those of you who are in Brooklyn or folks in San Francisco or in places like Houston, LA, people who would say, I'm liberal, I'm progressive, but I'm really uncomfortable with like what's happening with those homelessness encampments and things like that. And 
I think the really important conversation to be had then is not, you know, is it okay or not okay? I think we can all agree it is not okay that somebody is unhoused and that somebody is experiencing that level of instability. It's also not okay for the store owner who has a homeless encampment outside their store on the sidewalk or for, you know, uh, it, the, the business that's just trying to get by. Like we've got to actually intervene and we know that we have solutions that work. The city of Houston has dropped its homelessness population by, you know, literally two thirds because they invested in it. They actually built housing. They opened up housing opportunities where, you know, apartments and rooms were being mothballed and sort of warehoused and put them back online. They gave people supportive services. If you actually get people's needs met, we all feel safer. There are real solutions for this. And I think people often feel, well, that's great, but that's not going to happen immediately. And I want something to happen immediately. And the truth is we can, we could have another immediate response. Instead of sending the police to clear a homelessness encampment, and it'll be there the next week, you can send social workers and counselors and, you know, medics who are trained in actually getting people stable, getting their needs met, and then you won't see that encampment pop right back up a week from now. But then we have to pay social workers and we have to pay them at an equitable wage so that they can uh -huh. do their job. Are you say are you suggesting that the city hire more competent social workers and actually pay them a living wage where they don't have to also have a side job <laughs> at Applebee's in order to get there. I mean, I know social workers who are doing that work during the day, but yeah. they and they work for the city, but yeah. their their salary is like $45,000 in New York City. And so they got to like work at Applebee's to supplement mm -hmm. their work. And so I'm already tired and already at risk for doing this high impact and high mentally draining work, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, yeah. spirit training work. Yeah. Then I got to like freshen up and go to my other job, yeah. <laughs> like, in, like in service people, because the city can't pay, won't, not can't, won't, won't. pay me a living wage to actually do this work. But That's I'll pay right. cops overtime. Right. And look, you know, I think for a lot of people, it becomes uncomfortable when it's like, why do we have to pit this police against others and things like that? And I will say this is we are currently sending the police into unwinnable situations that they are not trained to handle, are not the right people to handle, and nor does it actually help us with the problem that's at hand. And so if you think about it quite simply, what is the right first response? That's when we get to open up a conversation about how we actually pay medics and community first responders and social workers to actually be able to do the jobs that we have tasked them to do. And they're the people with the right skill sets to do it. Yeah. Well, we're going to take our last break here. And then when we come back, I want to talk about the white, the, the right first response as it pertains to um, <clears throat> some of these systems we're talking about, but then also pivoting to what's our continuous steps on justice reform. Because yeah. as I told some of the state legislatures, y'all need to be like, we done with bail reform and let's move on like to the next thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, what is the next thing and what yep. are some of the opportunities we can so we'll talk about that when we come right back after this break here on Sunday City. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me? How could you see your life was the only gift I left for me to be free? It's a 
Welcome back. I'm here with Sunday Civics with Insha Frafan from Vera Institute. Um, Insha, can you, for just a minute, just, you know, uh, do a Vera Institute commercial? What, what is Vera Institute all about? Yeah, so the Vera Institute of Justice, what we do is we work to end mass incarceration, fight for immigrants' rights, um, protect the dignity of people who are behind bars, and help to build safe, thriving communities. And we do that nationally, although New York City is our original home. We also have offices in D.C., Louisiana, and California. Wonderful, wonderful. So it is national work. And breaking these systems um, is... You know, I can admit that sometimes it feels what it what is that Greek the other like where you're pushing a boulder up the hill and then mm -hmm. you know I forgot who it is somebody. <laughs> um, it does feel like that, um, and mm -hmm. that you know you're dismantling systems that took generations um, to build. Yeah. Um, that are tied. Uh, intricately tied to our economic systems. Yep. Right. Um, because it's not just about, you know, writing injustice when that injustice is also tied to people's wealth, um, i.e., prison and, you know, sort of other systems. You know, that's a lot. People react, you know, and push back differently because it's just like, how else am I going to make money if it's not off of the backs of other people? Like, I'm mm -hmm. unclear. <laughs> like what do you think this is um and i just thought about that recently just about like you know the fines and fees and people paying still mm -hmm. paying in the age where we're you know in cell phones people are still paying um to make phone calls home in prison like we paid our phone bill back in the day is just you know asinine yep yeah um but how do we move to the next step and what are those next steps in terms of justice reform and not i'm not you know obviously looking to you to you know chart out this should be the thing right i understand that there are many different things and there's also many mm -hmm. different things in different places we may be primed in new york to move on to one thing yep. whereas louisiana is is primed to move on somewhere else but i'd love for you to share for folks you know what are some of those next things that we can move forward in the quest um, to write our just uh, criminal justice system. So I'll turn to policy in a second, but I wanna talk about the politics. I would say everywhere in this country, we have to be focused like a laser on how do we change the way people think, talk and vote around safety? Cause that's what's gonna change the politics on this issue to make sure that we actually pass policies that help make our communities safer, more just, more equitable, more fair. And there are real ways to actually change how people think, talk, and vote on this issue. And one of them is just to simply have these conversations. Like everywhere that you are, whether that's in the car with your kids or at a dinner with your family or in your church or community group, like we should be talking about what actually makes us safe because that opens the door to all of these justice reform policies that I'll talk about in a second, but to making them possible because without the politics on our side, we actually don't get to move forward on good policy. And we need good policy, certainly for fairness and justice and equity, which is what gets me up every day and brings me to this work, but also for safety, which also gets me up every day and is important for each and every one of us. So where do I think we go from here? I actually don't feel, even though the vibes aren't good, even in New York around bail reform, 
I actually don't feel hopeless that we're still making progress and we're still moving forward. Because what I've seen just in the past couple of years is a real understanding that the way that we currently say that we deliver safety with police and jails and courts and prisons, people really are beginning to understand and invest to say that's actually not the only way we do safety. In fact, we have a much better way to do it. And so what we've seen across the country here in New York, elsewhere, is millions and millions of dollars that's been invested in the past couple of years in community first responders. So somebody calls 911 because their loved one's having a mental health crisis. Imagine if you get a mental health specialist as opposed to a police officer with a badge and a gun. That's happening much more around this country. Imagine when you see somebody on the street who is homeless and is having a, you know, a mental health breakdown, you have a community first responder come instead of the police. Like all of that is starting to happen in very real ways and there's a lot of support for it. So I'd say continuing on that path because it's something everybody recognizes, there's a better way to do this, I think is really key. And we already have lots of momentum for it. And it's not just in big blue cities like New York City, but in places in Georgia and Ohio and New Mexico and elsewhere. Um, I would say too, another thing that we have increasingly, I think, come to realize is keeping people behind bars for decades entire lifetimes doesn't actually work, doesn't make us safe. It's a tremendous expense, both in terms of cost, but in terms of human potential and families and communities. And so I'd say we're really actually seeing momentum, especially during the pandemic, where jails and prisons were ground zero for COVID and the pandemic and loss of life. We saw a lot of people get released from jail and prison and actually do just fine in the community. And I think that opened up a conversation to say, the person who is now sitting in prison at 50 years old is not the person who held up somebody at gunpoint or did something terrible when they were 16, 17, 18 years old. And it's realizing human potential, the ability to change, and really prioritizing safety as opposed to punishment. So I would say that there's still momentum on sentencing reform and second look and all of those kinds of policies that make much smarter decisions about safety than the status quo. So those are just a few examples of like, where do I think we're still going and where do I think we still have momentum? And we're entering um, in a couple of months, right? The summer will begin in earnest a national uh, election, right? Mm -hmm. With the uh, presidential election, also with Congress and others. What are some things on the federal level um, that we could possibly enter into the conversation during the election cycle next year? Yeah. Well, we've seen this administration do a lot of great things on a lot of fronts, but where I think they've been lagging is on criminal justice reform. And President Biden at the State of the Union, he got up there with Tyree Nichols, who had just been murdered a month before in Memphis by five police officers. His parents were in the audience at the State of the Union, and we heard President Biden say, we need to get police reform and police accountability done. And I think there's real opportunity and momentum. There's a lot of public support for both certainly supporting the police to do the difficult jobs they're tasked to do, but also holding them accountable when they abuse their power or break the law. And that support holds up among moderates, among independents, even among conservatives. So that is something that we absolutely have to get done. It is a national imperative. We have had too many deaths 
at the hands of police violence is just not necessary. So I would say that that is the number one priority for this administration and on the federal campaign trail to say we can and must do something about police brutality and police accountability. It's long overdue. Yeah. <clears throat> I wonder, um, you know, in, in just mentioning um, some of the options that we talked about as we think about the difference of what the first response is in a lot of our different systems. And it seems to me that work, that is a cultural narrative shift for people, right? Mm -hmm. Because you think the most average person, if something has happened, I need to call 911. What are the three responses of 911 is either police, fire, or medical, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, and that is the only system we know of, I call this when trouble has occurred, right? Um, but it, that, um, I guess, cultural shift of how we change, one, who do we call or how do we respond to emergencies or um, urgent issues? And then two, who needs to be first um, or what system needs to be in place to address these issues, that seems like a multi-part step, yeah. right? I think we've now come as a society to a point where we understand that, say, for instance, in the instance of someone experiencing a mental health crisis, that I think we are in a space, that I don't know that there's been any polling on it, it should be, Right. But I think we've come to a consensus where it's like, well, a criminal response of a police officer responding to a person is not the right response. And we mm -hmm. have instance after instance. I'm not even talking about the tragic incident of people losing their lives, but just just the general well-being of the person. If I am a mother, if I am someone who's calling and I have a family member or someone who is in a mental health distress, like what I'm calling asking for assistance for them being able to stress. I've named the issue, right? Mm -hmm. It's a mental thing, whether they're on medication or not, or experiencing some kind of break. And then two, the response need not be criminal being in the fact of police officers, right? Yeah. yeah. So how do we build systems that address our those issues differently? Yeah. Um, and, and that is both, I think, cultural work in helping mm -hmm. We got to rewire our brain in that, but then also pol political and public oh, policy is like at the work of, okay, so then what systems respond? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to start by saying about half of all crimes that happen to people every year go unreported. And there are many reasons why, including that certain community members don't actually feel like the government um, and the response that they're going to get is one that actually addresses the need that they have. So that fundamentally is something that we have to change. People must feel like if I need help, my government is here to actually respond. And, you know, there's 240 million, million calls to 911 a year. That's 240 million times that people need some kind of assistance. And what we need to do is to put the burden on the government and not on people to call for the right place. You shouldn't have to call 17 different numbers to get the kind of response you need, whether that's a mental health professional or something else. 
you should just be able to call one number. Maybe that's 911. Maybe at some point it becomes something else because 911's got a lot of baggage attached to it. And it should be on the government to then know what we need to do is send the right first response. And oftentimes that will not, in fact, be police. Um, what we know from the numbers is of the roughly 10 million arrests that are made each year, less than 5% are for crimes that involve violence. Most are for things like drug use, drug possession, a mental health issue, an issue that's really driven by poverty. We can address those concerns and we can do it with the right first response that isn't what the status quo is. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I'll just give a little story about how there are concrete examples of this being done. There's um, a program in Eugene, Oregon. It's called the CAHOOTS program. And it's been around for about 20 years now. And they work very closely with 911 and the police department in Eugene. And they take literally close to 20% of all the calls that are made to the Eugene Police Department, and they go instead, and they provide mental health services. They get people into housing or access to treatment or whatever their basic needs are. We can do that at scale. That doesn't just have to be because it's Eugene, Oregon. We just need to make the political choice that that's actually how we're going to respond to crisis and need and responding to people's, uh, you know, asks for help to the government and just respond in a different way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think that is a, <clears throat> you know, here in New York, I know there have been several attempts. Senator Parker has tried that um, yep. uh, attempt in terms of creating another response because, um, you know, there is, uh, like, as you mentioned, people don't call or won't do things and then it gets to an unattainable situation then you have to call the police because of something yeah. where in which if you had the supports beforehand, it wouldn't have gotten to the situation um, that it gets to. Um, and again, that seems like it's, it's the cultural work of being able to re-engineer because there was a time where 911 didn't exist. <clears throat> right? Like, only 50 years ago. It right? hasn't been around for forever. Right. And so like I, I have older family members who remember social security numbers not existing, who remember 911 not existing. Uh -huh. Like so we so we've created systems um and which means that we can create others <laughs> to address needs. And and it it's always hilarious to me if people get so entrenched and beholden to one thing. It's just like, you know, there was this didn't exist before. And so we can change it or we can modify it to address the need. Uh, of people now, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. being able to address that. And that um, if you think about it, um, in other areas that are not sort of large municipalities like New York City or Chicago or things like that, this also happens mm -hmm. in smaller rural, like, you know, areas, right? Like there is the, well, I, yes, I've called the police department in actual number and not getting a welcome to the NYPD and press the number, but like actually like calling, calling and people know, like, and people knowing, oh, you don't need the police to show up for that. Like, you know, let me call his doctor. Let me call this or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and we can respond. So the other thing is that we act as if this doesn't happen in this country when in fact it does. Yeah. And it's just thinking about like, how do we scale up those systems uh, that you know might look different in a Chicago or New York City because of the amount of people, mm -hmm. um, but that there are successful models that we can follow. Yep, 
Yeah. And just to your point of 911 didn't always exist, 311, if it was a better response, don't you think more people would be calling it? We just yeah. launched in this country 988 um, about a year ago, and that's for when somebody is having a mental health crisis. It's a suicide prevention hotline, a national one. If we actually invest in those other numbers and those other options and we make them effective so that you know they sell themselves to people, that's how we actually break out of our current cultural norms and create new ones. Yeah. And it helps relieve some of the pressure off of our other systems, as you mm -hmm. mentioned. I remember um, being in rooms, and I often say this, in, in rooms that people who are entrenched and, you know, believe the police can do no wrong. And I'm like, don't you, it, I have family members who have been police officers, and this is where I got it from. I got it from them who are saying like, man, y'all call police for everything. I don't know how to do that. Like that, like that. That's where I got the. We are asking police officers to do too much from an uncle who says y'all call the police for everything. I don't even like mm -hmm. they train me to figure out like, how to do that, right? And so if we just think about that in that context, like how is it that only one department should know how to do respond to a mental health crisis, chase after somebody who just robbed you? <laughs> like, get a cat out of a tree get a cat out of a tree <laughs> you, know, just, you know stand there and protect the business while people protest like really we supposed to do all of that and more yeah and solve crime, mm -hmm. and and that solve crime which is the thing they don't actually do efficiently or more of because we asking them to do all of the other everything stuff. else yeah yeah no it's true. like i can protect a building from a protest i can do that solve a rape case ah, can't do that yeah. can't do that effectively yeah. but i got but i got overtime um sorry <laughs> so to your point so i just want to underscore how badly we are using our precious resources we spend 115 billion with a b on police officers and law enforcement every year and if you poll people and ask in most communities people don't feel they just don't feel safe. They don't think what we're currently doing is working. So that is an opportunity not to pit people against the police or anything else, but to say we really need to rethink the status quo. You know, one um, final thing I wanted to ask you about um, is, uh, you know, just going back to the beginning, talking about crime statistics is it's interesting to me. We keep lots of the statistics on crimes that have happened. Yep. But, you know, one of the other statistics that we have not kept um, is that police departments um, themselves are not responsible in a cohesive way for sending information and statistics about themselves and others to, so that we can look at trends and look at things holistically. Even here in New York City with the biggest, and we keep picking on New York City, not only because we're from here, but, you know, because they say we are the largest police department in the country or law mm -hmm. enforcement agency in the country that don't send statistics to the federal government yep. in, in terms of their work. And there are a lot of other police departments. And it seems to me that is another federal piece that we can press hard on is requiring any law enforcement agency in this country that receives federal funding mm -hmm. to report or its data mm -hmm. its data to the federal government yep yeah undoubtedly undoubtedly and here's why it's important is while i think statistics don't matter to the everyday person of how am i feeling how do i think my government is doing 
What it does matter to is how do we actually know where we're doing well and we need to double down and where we aren't doing well and we need to do better, we need to do different. And you can't change, you can't evaluate what you can't measure, right? So it's so critical that we have transparency, that we know what's happening under the hood. And when even large, really well-resourced police departments like the NYPD don't do that, how do we expect that of you know, out of the 36,000, no, I'm sorry, 18,000 police departments across the country, how do we expect the much smaller ones to do that? So we've got a real effort to be made with transparency and consistency when it comes to data. And what it'll also do is help with, you know, integrity and credibility of the system. So I couldn't agree more. That is also something that we should be putting front and center in addition to police oversight and accountability you know, on, on the docket for this coming year. Well, Insha, thank you so very much for taking the time um, to chat with us and being at the front of the class. I want to bring you back and have some legislators from across the country to talk about um, what those next steps are um, in addressing our justice reform system. And I think that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the that. time. Thanks so much for teaching and learning with me. So great to be thank here. You. And thanks to all of you for making it to class. I'll see you next week for another engaging and informative discussion. Until then, stay engaged, stay informed, and keep making a difference. Have a good one. Oh,